0: Welcome to those who are joining us in the traditional sanctuary and also those who are joining us online. It's good to be able to study the Word of God all together. I just want to start today by acknowledging that I'm sure, like me, many of you have been really deeply saddened by the events of this weekend in Paris. And it really hits my heart on so many different levels. I'm saddened for the victims of the shooting, those who have lost loved ones for those who are dealing with the state of emergency in Paris, and I'm saddened for the shooters themselves, who are somehow taught and bought into a story of who God is and what God wants that is, I believe, the exact opposite of what God wants, both for them and for the world. And it reminded me again how important it is for the church, for us, to be helping people see who God really is through the face, through the hands and the feet, and the words and the actions of Jesus. People have always found their identity through sharing and claiming a mutual story. It's true of every tribe on the face of the earth. And in this world of too much information coming at us too fast, and with the breakdown of the family, it can be really hard for people to figure out meaning for themselves, to figure out their own story, what tribe they belong to. And the bigger that the world gets, actually the more tribal it becomes, because people need to find their identity around a common story. But those tribes of identity look pretty different today than they maybe once did. And if we don't know what our story is that we're living in, what is that bigger story that we're part of, there are plenty of forces in this world that will try to fill in the blanks for us. And some of those forces are a little more innocent than others, where people find their identity. Might be, well, I'm a Trekkie, I'm a goth, I'm a hipster. Or people might find identity through the common story of consumer culture, or drug culture, or gangs, or militants. But the truth is, we need to know a greater story to be able to form our personal meaning around it. But the thing is, we already are. part of a greater story. There is a story unfolding that we're living in. We belong to the greater story of our God who created us, who sustains us, who long ago in history freed his people from slavery and led them across a desert to find new life with himself. We belong to a God who so loved sinful, broken people like us that he would again send a rescue through his own son, not to rebuke us, but to save us to save broken, imperfect people. The first covenant that God made with his people was a conditional one. It was, if you will be my people, if you will follow my commands, I will be your God. Because God's commands were actually for the people's good, but they couldn't keep them. And through that covenant, that history of God's faithfulness, through years of human unfaithfulness, We came to know the character and the love of our God who would not give up on humankind. And then in Jesus of Nazareth, God sent the Messiah to make a new covenant with God, one that did not depend on our deserving. Jesus completely fulfills that first covenant of perfect faithfulness in our place. And then he offers to share with us the reward of his victory. So here's the new covenant. You trust He saves. And this new covenant wasn't just made for one ethnic people group who tried to follow God's commands, but for all people who have ever sinned but still long for God. So if that's your story, if you have ever sinned but still long for God, guess what? Jesus has just written you in. Jesus' story is your story now. And it's one of new life and new belonging and resurrection. Jesus said in John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. That is the story that our God wants us to be part of, to know as our own. But do we even start to catch a glimpse of what that story means for us? Jesus clearly taught that our stories include life beyond this life. And the Sadducees were a group that had a hard time believing that that was actually God's plan. They needed to have their parameters expanded a little bit. So that's what Jesus did in Luke 20. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now, read into the question here. Clearly, Jesus, there can't be a resurrection because then heaven would be chaos. If this resurrection stuff is true, Jesus, who has the right to claim this woman? Who will she belong to? And Jesus replies in verse 34, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. In the resurrection, who has the right to claim this woman as his own? God. She is his. His alone she is and always will be a beloved child of God a child of the resurrection one born of a brand new beginning where she is not defined by anything or anyone other than the love of God for her does that answer your question Sadducees (laughs) can you hear their minds being blown because this story just took on a very unearthly kind of direction but Jesus isn't done blowing their minds he goes on in verse 37 But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed us that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. So not only is there a resurrection coming through Jesus' grace, but God's life obviously exists outside of the human timeline. God didn't say he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when they were alive. He says he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the great I am. He is the source of life. And resurrection is for us simply entering into and sharing in God's own ongoing eternal life. Only God can invite that to happen as Jesus, who is going to make that eternally possible for people throughout time by his own sacrifice, just blows their minds again. Scripture continues in 39. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. (laughs) And no one dared ask him any more questions. And I can totally understand why. (laughs) Jesus is talking about this holy mystery that's so far beyond what we can understand, that these years of our earthly life are not the limit to but only the introduction to our connection with the living God, that there is a greater story unfolding, and that the baseline of that story is God created you on purpose. God knows you personally, and he loves you. God wants you to know that you are loved and that you are wanted in his plan. He wants you to know him, so that you can share in his life today with him, but also in the next. And Jesus invites us to live in God's own life, so he invites us in one story at a time. Come and find your identity here. Come and get to know the heart of the Father. Learn to trust him. Because you come to get to know a person by knowing their stories, but it's not just knowing the stories. It's understanding that there is a real God who is at work today for you in the same way that he was really at work through these stories. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So how do you let God's story into your story? How do you start living as part of his greater story today? Well, in the past, literary critics thought that the best way how to understand a text or a story was to deconstruct it. Have you ever heard of that? Where you take apart every little word of the text and you pull it apart and you dissect it for meaning. But eventually what they found was if you dissect something too much, you take the life out of it, right? (laughs) And you can't learn all that it is unless you let it live, unless you see it move and react and interact. So now critics have started to say, even with literary stuff like Shakespeare, unless you stand under the text, you'll never understand it. What that means is, unless you accept the authority of the text and you live into it, you're not going to get it. So if you're talking about Shakespeare, that probably means that the first thing you have to do is accept that you've just entered a world where people talk in rhyming couplets, right? Only when you accept that do you start to hear what they're actually trying to say to each other. And in the same way, it's only when you stand under the authority of Scripture and you let it speak for what it is, that you let it live into your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Only then will you begin to understand what God is showing you through it. So first of all, do you know the story? Are you intentionally diving into it? To learn what it says and secondly are you letting the story speak to you about who God is and how he's at work in you let's take one story and just take a look at it from the story of scripture do you know the story of David God told David when he was a boy that he was going to be king but the problem was there already was a king named Saul and he was very jealous of David And Saul spent years going after David to kill him, because that's what happens when people feel threatened. But David never lifted a finger to harm Saul. Instead, he put his attention toward honoring God and trusting God for what would be. But that meant in the meantime, he had a lot of years running and hiding in caves. And a lot of the Psalms that are in Scripture are by David, and they're crying out to God, What is going on? Where are you, God? And it seems to us, for many of us maybe, that those were wasted years where David could have been ruling if God had just maneuvered him onto the throne earlier. But those years weren't wasted because it was in those years in the cave that taught David to cry out to God to be his source of strength. It was those years in the cave, those years taught him that God is the one who's in charge, and it formed in David the right heart the humble heart, the obedient heart that he would need to be the kind of king that God wanted him to be for the people, to be, in fact, the greatest king that Israel had ever known, a man after God's own heart. But that only happened through the time in the cave. And years later, when Saul died in battle, and the people raised up David to be the king, instead of getting busy with all the things he needed to do to make his kingdom reign, David, with really great wisdom, chose to start with something else. First, he stopped everything to grieve. He wrote a song of lament, and he had the people lament with him. He stopped to recognize his own grief, because as rocky as their relationship had been, he had actually known Saul personally, and Saul's son Jonathan, who also died in the battle, had been David's greatest friend. Before it was time to move forward, it was time to grieve. The end of an era, both for the people and for himself. David knew that before God could bring something new, they had to pay attention to the time in between, because that's where God does some of his best work in us. What is God saying to you in that story? See, between the death of Jesus on the cross and his amazing resurrection to new life, there was a day called Holy Saturday that was a day full of fear and heartache, and questions, and confusion, and between Jesus rising from the dead, and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, there was a, over a month of confusion, and questions, and prayers, and I think some of those prayers were, what's going on? <laughs> the time in between, and in that time, the disciples had to die to what they thought things were going to look like, before they were ready to receive what God was actually going to do now, before they were ready to embrace the very new kind of story that he was writing through the saving power of Jesus and through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But the time in between isn't always very fun. But when we stand under the larger story of God's love, seeing how God has been at work, we can start to understand that even in our lives, God can do some of his best work in us in the in-between time in the time when we're simply to be and to grieve and surrender, because that's when God brings out the hidden hurts to light, when he shows us what needs attention or healing or redirection. That's how God works in us when he wants to bring us to a new kind of hope. He sets a season of laying down what we think we know and taking the time to ask the questions, to grieve what's past, so we can let the Lord lead us forward. And that's an incredibly important opportunity to surrender to God and to let him lay the foundation for what he's going to do next in you. And it can be a really painful process in those in-between times. But you know the story that you belong to, the story that you're part of. And in this story, in your story, where Jesus Christ is at the center, After the cross comes the resurrection. And especially in times like this, we need to know that bigger story we're living in, in those cave times, and the in-betweens. We need the testimony of the lives around us to tell us the story when we forget that God is with us. You might already know this about me, but uh, this is part of my story. I am really bad with technology. I know it's a surprise. But today, things are changing so fast that I actually dread getting an upgrade, because that means I'm going to have to try to learn a new language of symbols, colors, and shapes to get my technology to work. And I realize that symbols can be friendly, like across cultures, but that only works when you know what they mean, right? You have to first understand the story behind the pictures before they can be helpful to you. But how do we learn what they mean? because you have to already know what you're looking for to type in the words to find out the information you don't know, right? I'll be working on something on the computer, and all of a sudden it's gone, and I'll have no idea what I did, but I do know exactly what I have to do next. What I have to do is find someone 20 years younger than me. (laughs) And I need them to tell me, oh, just click on this thing that looks like a squid, okay? Or, this is my favorite, click on the corner of the screen where there's nothing. Because if you click on the corner of the screen where there's nothing, a menu will pop up. What's with the secrets, people? Come on! Whatever happened to words like redo or undo or something like restore. If you're like me, what you need at that point is a person, right? You need someone to tell you the story, to show you how the symbol makes sense, what the symbols are telling them, before you can start to see it for yourself, before you can enter into conversation and see how it works in your life. So why did I put you through my computer woes? Because I think sometimes in the church, we do the same thing. We talk in symbols. We talk about take it to the cross, live in the spirit, love like Jesus, and we forget that people don't have the the first idea what that means, because they don't know the story behind the symbols. They can't access the restorative power we're talking about in their own lives unless we are willing one-on-one to walk alongside them and show them and explain what the story of Jesus means and what it has to do with us. Because the truth is, most of the time, even if they have access to that instruction manual called the Bible, unless they first see the story lived out in front of them, it's hard to understand what that salvation, grace, forgiveness is all about. Or even begin to discover how they can access that story of hope for themselves. The truth is, through the Holy Spirit, who continues to speak Jesus' love through us, Our stories, no matter how simple they are, they can have the power to speak to someone else in ways that we might never even imagine when we dare to share them, when we share the one, Jesus, who is the heart of our story. And with that, I would like to uh, share the story of our student ministry director, Melinda Kern, uh, today through a video.
1: How I came to be a part of the First Lutheran Church family was back around, it would have been oh, probably about 1996, and I was getting ready for middle school, and my family had just left um, a church in the area, and we were feeling a little hurt, a little lost trying to find a new church home, and we had some good family friends that were members of First Lutheran, and they had been coming here, oh, for forever, and started kind of giving us that nudge and inviting us, and it took, it took a few, few invites and a few tries, and Finally, my parents caved and said, all right, we're gonna go check out First Lutheran. I did not get active right away. Um, I was a really shy and awkward and quirky kid and was not from the White Bear area. I was from Stillwater. And so I didn't really know anybody here. Um, And I was pretty much a loner. Youth ministry was actually really miserable for me. Seventh through ninth grade, and through those confirmation years. And um, part of it was that I just felt I didn't belong, and I felt really unnoticed. And to be honest, there would be Wednesday nights that the youth leaders at the time, nothing against them, but I would get asked if I was a visitor and who I was with, and I'd go. I've been coming here in a part of confirmation for the last three years and I can remember very specifically standing between the sanctuary and the fellowship hall with my dad after worship one Sunday morning and and I knew I wanted to be a pastor or I knew I wanted to do some kind of um, teaching role in ministry I actually had started thinking about maybe wanting to be a religion teacher, even even being 15, 16 years old. Um, I knew I wanted to do some kind of work with Jesus. And I remember saying to my parents that one Sunday morning, I said, God's been really on my heart and has been telling me that he wants me to make some changes and he doesn't want students to feel the way that I have and that he wants more and that I'm gonna work here someday. I definitely see a connection between my past and what I experienced as a teenager and um, comparing it to the lives of teenagers now and being able to to have a new understanding for teenagers and where they're at. Um, And not only that, but, being able to help teenagers see that Jesus loves them and that even in maybe those dark times or those lonely times that he's there and he's got a plan for them and that he loves them. And that that's my story too. And to be able to help them to see that um, is, is such a gift and such a blessing to be able to do that and to have those connections.
0: this time of struggle and loneliness even here in the church god came to her and spoke tenderly to her heart of her own belonging in him and prepared her equipped her for what she does today is reaching out to kids and showing the love of jesus in the ministry that she does now That in those times in our lives, those cave times, those in-between times, when we share our stories and we show others that they're not alone in those things that God is still working, it gives us hope to carry on and see our own identity as part of the bigger story of Jesus redeeming love and of the community of his grace. And it's a message that we need today more than ever for each one of us. The sermon series is called The Heart of the Story. And as part of it, We want to invite you to share your story, too. You can go to www.heartofthestory.org. This is a website that was created by First Lutheran for us to share our stories of God's faithfulness in our lives, just to encourage each other or to learn more about each other. You can click on share to share your story or click on stories just to see the faith stories of other First Lutheran members in action. Because it's so important that we know the story of Jesus' love for us, but sometimes we can only start to imagine what it means when we see it explained through a life around us. We need to know the story of Jesus' love, and we also need to live that story so others can see that as well. That your life might be the only Bible someone around you might ever read. So we invite you to shine Jesus because he is and he always will be the heart of our story. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have chosen us, that you have found us in our brokenness in this world and that you have invited us by your love, by your sacrifice to share your story and to share your life. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to dive deep into your word and to know the truth of your story for us in the good times and in the bad times, that you are faithful and that you are with us and that you are constantly writing the story of your grace in us and through us for the sake of the world. And finally, Lord, we thank you um, that the end of our story is in your hand, um, that you have promised us a future and a hope with you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us to find ourselves in your story today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.